child support is the right of the child. So anything that you're going to put in an agreement or order has got to pass the muster of the court. And the court's not going to be looking really at either the parent's situation. They're going to be looking at it from the child's perspective. So the idea is that it's there to support the child. So, you know, uh, roof over the head, food, clothing, basic necessities, um, those kinds of things. Um, and then there's kind of uh, a couple of elements that we look at to determine child support. So first of all, we look at the parenting situation to see who pays child support. The second thing we look up, look at is income. Um, and sometimes we look at both people's income. I guess normally we look at both people's income, but um, sometimes one person's income is more relevant to child support than the other. And then the last thing we look at is number of children. Um, and those are sort of the three factors that get put into the table to figure out child support. Um, so it's as easy as that. Thanks very much for having me. Yeah. We'll see you next time. <laughs> <laughs>
All right, Heather, the, uh, the streaming situation's been fixed for the child. <laughs> the child is successfully Google meeting, yes. Awesome. It's so great that our kids get to do online school, isn't it? Yeah, it's really good for them, and it's good for parents. I'm finding teachers are loving it. It's just yeah. a big deal. It's ideal all around. Yeah. My 16-year-old, when the announcement came out they're going back to online school, had a meltdown, like a, an emotional breakdown. I can see it do this again right yeah like a silent scream into a pillow I, that's what i like to do it was an audible scream oh okay okay no pillow no pillow was <laughs> okay <laughs> it was like tears and like the world is ending how can they do this to me yeah for her sake we're really hoping this is just a few weeks and we're back to normal. Yeah, and that this does the trick. Yeah, we've got the dubious honor of having, what, the highest positivity rates. In, in North America. At least in North America. Yeah, yeah. so yeah, it's not... Not, not great. Bad. Not great. Not yeah. Okay. So, um, right. So child support. Child support. Yes. Okay. Heather, why don't we start with, um, do you want me to just sort of talk about the basics? I could yeah. start there and then you guys can interrupt with some questions. So, um, Let's start with the very most basic and important premise I think that everyone should know, which is that child support is the right of the child. So anything that you're going to put in an agreement or order has got to pass the muster of the court. And the court's not going to be looking really at either the parent's situation. They're going to be looking at it from the child's perspective. So the idea is that it's there to support the child. So, you know, uh, roof over the head, food, clothing, basic necessity, um, those kinds of things. Um, and then there's kind of uh, a couple of elements that we look at to determine child support. So first of all, we look at the parenting situation to see who pays child support. The second thing we look, up, look at is income. Um, and sometimes we look at both people's income. I guess normally we look at both people's income, but um, sometimes one person's income is more relevant to child support than the other. And then the last thing we look at is number of children. Um, and those are sort of the three factors that get put into the table to figure out child support. Um, so it's as easy as that. Thanks very much for having me. Yeah. We'll see you next time. <laughs> so, um, man, that is a great, simple summary of how it works. Um, Kim, let's start with you. What, do you. what is, give us some questions. I have a lot of questions for you, Heather. Everybody on this podcast or our audience knows that I am not a lawyer. I am asking questions from the perspective of somebody who has not participated in child support before. And there's a whole pile of questions. So the, one of the things that I see in, in my practice, when I'm doing budgets for people who are trying to figure out their, if they can afford their divorce, mm -hmm. is we'll get information from lawyers about what child support is used for. Like, what is it actually used, meant to support? So there's the regular expenses, 
or I don't know if there's a better word for that, the typical expenses. And then there's the extraordinary expenses, the section seven. And I think a lot of people listening is, are trying to figure out, okay, if I get this money, what am I supposed to use it for? What does the courts think I'm supposed to use it for? And what are these two expense types? That's that's a really good question. So um, because there are kind of two elements to child support commonly. Um, so we often talk about table support, section three or section nine support, and that's the basic child support. So like I said, that, that's that goes to the roof, the clothes, the food, those kinds of things for the children. Um, <clears throat> so and that's the part that's um, um, well, they're both determined by 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 income. Um, but let's take a situation where you have a primary parent. So um, one parent has care and control of the kids most of the time, and then you have a parent who's having um, some parenting time that's less than forty percent of the time. So that would be a straight sort of table situation where um, there'd be a payor and a recipient of child support, and they're paying that table amount based on their income and the number of children in the table that can be found in the legislation um, online. I guess yeah. Can you just regulation? Let's, let's yeah. stop right there for a second. Yeah, I'm probably going all lawyer talk. Table. Can you just tell us what the table's about? Yeah, so it was developed by the government. I think a bunch of um, fi financial people, accountants, um, all crunched a bunch of numbers, and they basically have come up with a table. So there's incomes along one side, there's number of children along um, the top, and you find the two together where they meet, and that tells you what your child support amount is per month. Um, so they've crunched a lot of numbers to try and come at come up with those tables so that it's generally the most fair for the most people so that the most people who are accessing the court system and paying child support are getting treated um, the same way as other people who are in the same financial situation yeah. um, can i let me just add something there heather it's yeah um, these people that crunched the numbers, they looked at a lot of things. I don't know everything they looked at, but I know that they looked at cost of living, mm -hmm. you know, cost of groceries and fuel and all those kinds of things. In fact, the table has different amounts depending which province the children are living in. Right. Yeah. So they went that fine in detail. Um, and nothing's perfect. It's like everyone's different and every family situation is different, but they did the best they possibly could to try and figure out, okay, based on the economic reality of this geographic location and what it costs to raise a child, like the, provide the basic necessities for a child in this location, based on the income that the payer has, this is a fair and reasonable amount. Would you say that's a fair assessment? Yeah, I would. And I think one of the driving factors behind it, too, was also so that there was some simplicity and predictability for folks so that, you know, you don't have to go to the court um, or to an accountant to try and figure out what you're paying for child support. So, um, I mean, you can Google it. There's there's tons of tables online. I mean, I'm talking about a paper table, but obviously, like, there's tons of calculators online and you can just put in your province, the income, the number of kids. And it will give you the table amount. Um, so that's pretty 
that's a pretty simple way of getting at it. Um, I mean, of course, yeah, sometimes blunt, sometimes those tools mean that they're a little bit blunt. Um, but, um, the balance there is that, um, it's keeping people hopefully out of court. It's making it simpler for people to figure out, um, all of those kinds of things. Yeah. I, I think one of the ways it can be a blunt tool is it doesn't take into consideration your debt service ratio. If you are servicing a ton of debt, mm. it's going to feel like you are incapable of paying the table amount of child support and keeping the creditors at bay. That's that's a possible scenario if you're over leveraged or right. over levered. Right. Um, right. And, uh, the only other thing I wanted to say about that or, or bring up was. Um, no, now I can't remember. So let's move on, Heather. If, I, if it comes to me. It'll come back. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so I, you know, I still haven't even answered Kim's question. So we've got the table amount. And then she asked about the special or extraordinary expenses. So we call those Section 7 expenses. And um, you can pull those up as well. There's a whole list of them. But there are sort of listed categories of expenses that are then shared, not according to the table, but they're shared on a proportionate basis of according to each parent's income. So that's where both parties' income come into play then. So if you've just put the payors into the table amount, that's going to pop out a number. Um, for Section 7 expenses, you've got to consider both people's incomes. Um, and some of the listed Section 7 expenses are um, amounts for things like prescriptions, glasses, um, dentists, orthodontics, that can be a big one as kids get older. Um, extraordinary expenses for extracurricular activities, post-secondary education. So some of these are small expenses. Some of them can really be quite large. Um, and then, as I said, they're paid on a proportionate basis. So for example, you have, um, say, $10,000 of tuition that needs to be paid for um, an 18-year-old child going off to university. If one of the parents is earning $30,000 and the other is earning $70,000, then those would be the proportions that they would pay that $10,000. So the $70,000 earner would be expected to pay $7,000 towards that tuition. And uh, the $30,000 earner would be expected to pay $3,000. That may not entirely be the answer for an older child going to university, but you know that's a it's a good example because the the numbers work nicely. But let's say it was a hundred dollar soccer fee, then you're looking at seventy dollars and thirty dollars for the yeah. Of course, you had to use like a one of like the exceptions. Of right. The guidelines start to become fuzzy, but right. um, yeah. And just to, just to clarify, you said proportionate, which means and the reason you used seventy thousand thirty thousand is because that's a hundred thousand. The math is easy for us lawyer types, um, the proportionate share would be if you earn 70000 and together the whole amount is 100000 then you proportionately earn 70%. And so you'd pay 70%. Exactly. Yeah. It's just we did that. You did that for ease of calculation. I did. <laughs> yeah. In terms of income.
come, somebody who is listening to you right now would go to the, maybe the government website, they go to the calculator, the child support uh-huh. calculator. Uh-huh. And the first thing it's going to ask for is income. Yeah. Are people reporting yeah. their gross income or their net income yeah, uh, sort of after deductions and taxes and all that kind of stuff? So what people are going to at least want to start with is dig up your tax return and look at your line 150 on your tax return. It's not line 150 anymore, Heather. Oh, it's line 15,000. One, one, five, zero, 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 right? Is that what yeah. it is? Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, Evan. Um, and that's the number you're going to want to start with. Um, so then the table, the child support guidelines then allow people to make deductions from that. I'm still going to call it the line 150 because it's my habit, but <laughs> we'll know that that's what we're talking about um, from that line 150 income. If you're a straight simple employee um, that doesn't really have expenses or anything like that, for the most part, your line 150 is going to end up being your income for child support purposes. Um, But that's not necessarily the case. So some things that I mean that I see commonly and Evan, you can um, chime in if you see other ones, but like uh, union dues are common-ish to be deducted. Um, Sometimes motor vehicle expenses, although it strikes me that employers are (laughs) um, not maybe required. I don't know. Anyway, motor vehicle expenses. um, There's a whole really laundry list of deductions that are allowable there. Um, On the flip side of that, just because something is deductible from income doesn't mean it's deductible from income for child support purposes. So just because CRA um, lets you deduct it, it doesn't mean that they're going to let you take it off your income for child support. And I guess this is just sort of a flag to listeners because I don't want to get too far into the weeds and the details, but um, this typically um, or is commonly going to be if you're a sole proprietor or running your own business or um, an employer of your own corporation or running a corporation, any of those kinds of situations where you might have business income. Um, and you're, t- you're making deductions from them, sometimes those need to be added in back into your income, either entirely, partially, um, it kind of depends. Yeah, I, um, there is some case law about that. It, it, it's like we don't have uh, the know-how or the time to get into like, okay, what exactly will you need to add back? But what we can provide is, um, well, well, I'll make sure that we're, we are allowed to provide it when we have Ken Proudman on. But he has this great worksheet that, that he has shared uh, with lawyers on um, through his a website that he operates uh-huh. called Sweet, the Sweezy Disclosure <laughs> yeah. Form. Mm-hmm. And Sweezy's in somebody's last name uh, from some uh, court case where there was disclosure where a corporation was involved. Yeah. And what that does is it it will allow a person to work with their accountant to get a much better indication of what needs to be added back. Because guess what? Normally, if you're saying somebody doesn't, they're not really making that much money, they're making more. If you're making that acquisition, you have to prove it. But when you're self-employed and you have a corporation, 
the onus is on you to provide all that disclosure because you're in the best position to provide it. So if you are, uh, you know, in a corporation that's not arm's length corporation that you're getting paid by, you've got to, you've got to do that. So if we're able to, we're going to have that link here in in our show notes or in the YouTube, uh, description. Um, we're just going to check with the, the creator of that document first, because that'll be, that can be something that will help you figure that out and allow us to move on. Uh Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And with those extraordinary expenses, do those always have to be paid to the ex-spouse or can they go, because I hear a lot of mistrust um, when people are talking to me about their divorce budgets and Mm -hmm. cash flow Mm -hmm. and people say, well, my spouse isn't going to spend this money on the kids. They're going to spend it on themselves. On the drugs. Or or shopping. Right. Their new boyfriend. Mortgage. The question is, is these extra expenses, this extra money that that somebody's going to be paying for child support, is there a way to control and maybe even all child support, is there a way to control how that money is used? Um, Another great question. And that's something that I I hear, especially when you're right, when there's not a lot of trust. So the table amount is the table amount. And, you know, I go back to the first thing that I said at the beginning of the episode is it's the right of the child. So that is payable to the recipient. And the trust is that as the primary custodial parent, they're going to be spending that money appropriately. Um, You know, and what I tell clients sometimes too, that are concerned about this is if if they're paying rent and they're getting X number of dollars in and X number of dollars out, but you also see that they're making purchases that you don't like, I mean, they're still paying rent and they're still buying food and they're still buying groceries. So some of that money is going into one bucket and it's going out of another bucket. Um, but I guess the short answer is, is no, you don't get to control that money. Um, and conversely, I mean, there's really, as long as the custodial parent is taking care of the child and they're getting what they need there's no um you know there's no requirements on that parent to put that money in a particular bucket when it comes in um if that makes sense um i would add to that other uh ed gallagher what he used to tell me is um what he would tell the payer, the person paying the child support when they would bring this up, because it comes up all the time, Kim. That's why it's such a good question. They're like, I, I know she's just spending it, or I know he's just spending it on something dumb. Yeah. I don't, I want the money to go to the child. Yeah. And, and uh, I get it. Like, that's not, you're not crazy for wanting that. But what mm-hmm. Ed would say is, look, you're the lucky one. You pay the table amount, that's section three child support. You are doing your duty as a parent to provide for your child. Mm-hmm. And you can you can rest with a clean conscience knowing that you're doing that. And nobody can ever accuse you of being a deadbeat or not providing for your child. You're doing it. Right. You are doing it. The person getting paid has a responsibility to make sure that they are managing their resources mm-hmm. to provide adequately for their child. And unfortunately, you don't get to know anything about how they manage their money unless spousal support's on the table, but that's a conversation for another day. Right, right. Yeah, there's no accounting requirement or anything like that. As far as Section 7 expenses go, there's a number of ways that those can be 
managed. So, um, and often that goes along with the level of trust between parties. So um, sometimes parties might just have an agreement and they say, we'll just agree on these and we'll figure them out as they go, right? Um, oh, childcare is a big one. That's under section seven, by the way. So um, that might be a good one to point out. So childcare is a big section seven expense, but it also has a tax deduction associated with it. So that's one where each parent might want to pay the daycare provider um, themselves and proportionately so then they get the tax receipt. Um, so you're not paying that money to your, um, you know, to your ex and then, and then banking on them to pay the child care provider, you're paying them directly. And you can do that with any of the expenses or most of the expenses. Um, sometimes people put in place a procedure where you're going to, um, sometimes it's a dollar amount. So they say, okay, you know, um, of course, we're going to agree that the kids will be in soccer or that they're going to, you know, you can register them in sports, but if something's going to cost more than, and it depends on the budget, $100, $500, $1,000, you need to check with that expense with the other person if you want reimbursement for it. Um, or and or you have to show a receipt for it so that you can rest assured that they're actually incurring that expense um, and you can see how much it is, um, those kinds of things. Um, probably on sort of the end of like most enforceability or most help in controlling those expenses would be to have a written agreement or order that lays out all of the whatever section sevens you've agreed on and you can register it with MAP um, or the Maintenance Enforcement Program of Alberta. So you insert that order into MEP, they churn it through, and they'll run all of those expenses through them. So there's a small registration fee, and um, they will just, they'll they'll uh, administer those expenses for you. So the payor pay, um, pays through the MEP program, and then the MEP pays, uh, the MEP program pays out to the recipient. So lots of different ways to deal with those kind of situations. I hope that answers your question. <laughs> I, I have a, another thing that I'm hoping you can clarify. So, mm -hmm. so it's not always the case where one parent has full, you know, access or custody of the kids all the time. Mm -hmm. So when people are figuring out the child support, they're, they're going to punch in their spouse's income and the number of kids, and that's going to come up with an amount. Yeah. What if that other spouse is currently working as well? They have their own income. How do people plug that in and figure out what the spouse is actually going to pay them? You mean for um, the table child support or the... Yeah, because sometimes we have where it's just one person working. Uh -huh. So it's very simple, right? We plug, uh -huh. plug in their income. We know what we're going to get for child uh -huh. support. Uh -huh. What if the other person is working uh -huh. as well? Uh -huh. They they aren't, I'm assuming, going to get the the same amount. So I'm, I'm curious, or our listeners are curious, uh -huh. how they adjust for this. And right. who, who, when the people have the kids, what if it's split evenly? How does this money go back and forth? Yeah, so um, section three is the is the section that says um, if someone has 
primary care or most of the time with the children. So in that case, even if um, the custodial parent or the parent that has the kids all the time is working and earning, even if they're earning more than the payor, their income isn't relevant because they've got the kids most of the time. Where their income becomes um, part of the equation is when families are somewhere in between 40 and 60% of a shared parenting arrangement. So a little more, anywhere from a little more to a little less than half of the time. So, um, I mean, as you can imagine, all of these things we're talking about, there's like heaps of case law out there that are about, well, what's 40%? Do we count nighttime? Do we count, um, you know, if we do the switch at school, do we count half of the school day? Do we count the day, like the end of, like the beginning of the school day, the begin, like who gets which time? So there's tons of, tons of litigation about that. But if you're somewhere in that 60, 40 range, what the starting point, I mean, <laughs> According to the guidelines, it actually says that what you have to do is look at each person's income, and you also have to look at the means, needs, and conditions of the children. So really what that means is that it's sort of like a, all bets are off. It's a contextual analysis. Um, and while it is not necessarily um, what the guidelines say, a pretty common approach for a starting point anyway in shared parenting arrangements, so that's what a somewhere between a 40 and 60% is, is to do what lawyers refer to and courts refer to as a set-off approach. So that's when you would put the table, you would plug the income and the number of kids in the province into the table and you'd get the amount for one of the parents. You'd do the same thing for the other parent and then you'd subtract one from the other to figure out what the payment would be. Um, again, all sorts of, there's all sort of, sorts of um, like tax issues related to set off income approach. So if you're doing that and you really want to make sure that um, that um, you're okay there um, for, because the, oh my goodness, I'm wandering off course. There's some deductions that you might want to make sure that your divorce judgment or agreement um, is well worded so that both of you can get deductions. But regardless, you get, you just take the bigger amount, the smaller amount, um, subtract it and you get a net number. And that's basically how that works. Yeah, let me add something to kind of, I think maybe help clarify this for people. Yeah. So we're, we're talking, there's a bunch of different sections of child support guidelines that we're referring to. Yeah. That's when we're saying section, whatever. So section three is called, also called the basic amount. That's the child support that it, generally speaking, where one person is, has parenting time most of the time, the other person pays no matter what income the primary parent has. Doesn't matter, they pay section three child support every month. Yeah. Where there's shared parenting, then it actually goes from section three to section nine child support. Section nine is a section that's the guidelines that Heather was just talking about, where you can set off, but it's not so black and white as Heather said. It's generally speaking, that's what we try to do. Like if it's 50-50, lawyers are gonna try and help people come to that place where, okay, they can do that. But it's not always appropriate 
especially when the parenting situation changes. Um, the courts may say, well, you can't just all of a sudden take away this um, source of income that the other parent was relying on, especially where that parent doesn't have very much income themselves. You can't all of a sudden reduce it so much um, because it's not appropriate given the needs of the particular situation. That's where that really comes into play. Sometimes it may, it may be more appropriate to kind of have a gradual approach to ending up at the set off. But don't, I don't want you to think that, oh, immediately once I want to get to that 40% threshold so I can stop paying all this child support. If the court even gets a whiff that mm -hmm. that is your motivation for going to a 60-40 split, they're not, they're not going to be impressed. No. Um, which is a challenge maybe we can talk about a little bit later of like, how do you disentangle the financial incentive versus what's in the best interest of the child when it comes to parenting? Yeah. So those are those. And then there's this other thing, section seven, which is independent of both of those. Yeah. And that's what Heather was just talking about the and what Kim was asking about the extraordinary expenses. That's like an add-on, that's a bonus. And, right. and that's four expenses that are, that they didn't, all the nerds that crunched the numbers left all this other stuff out because it was too variable. Like not every child is in soccer or ballet or gymnastics or whatever hockey, right? That can be quite expensive. Mm -hmm. And so those are section seven. They're separate from the basic amount or section nine. Not to money the waters now that I just said that, Heather, mm -hmm. but um, what if there's two children, mm -hmm. one parent parents one child and the other parent parents the other child full time? Like a split custody yeah. arrangement? Well, we don't say custody anymore. Uh I'm sorry. <laughs> a split parenting arrangement. Yeah. Uh, if you don't know, I'm sorry that I put you on the spot if you don't know off the top of your head. I'm trying to, I'm just trying to think. I, I don't, I haven't had a split parenting arrangement in quite some time. So I, uh, I'm struggling to come up with the answer. Off the okay, top well, of I just totally set you up. I'm sorry. Okay, that's fine. I have the answer. Of course. That's why oh, I great. Well, fantastic. That's good. <laughs> <laughs> and I only have this because I had a client where this was the case mm -hmm. and I had to look it up because I didn't know either. Mm -hmm. And that's section eight. Mm -hmm. Section eight is different than section nine. Okay. Section eight says you are doing the set off. Oh, it's I not like guess a, that, but I thought guessing is probably a bad idea. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, your guess happened to be right, Heather. Okay. That's, that's section eight. So we've covered section seven, section eight and section nine. Um, if it's split, what okay, we call yeah. split custody is still called that in the child support guidelines, it's still called custody. But if it's one parent having parenting time exclusively with one child and the other with the other child or whatever combination that is, yeah. then it's, it's, it is a, a set off. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I just pulled that up. So the difference of the amount that each spouse would otherwise pay. So yeah, the language is different in section mm -hmm. nine. It is a lot more wishy-washy of mm -hmm. you. If it's appropriate under the circumstances, section eight says those this are the circumstances that are appropriate. Yeah. Yeah. So I got a question for you guys that just popped into my head that seems so, such a silly question to ask, but I don't know the answer and I'm in finance. How do people actually get the money? Do, does the one person EFT it on a systematic, like set up automatic to go into the other person's bank account? How, how is the money moving? 
Uh, yeah, however they w want, I guess. I think a lot of people do, yeah, e-transfers now or bank transfers. Um, you can write checks. You could provide a stack of post-dated checks at the beginning of the year if you wanted to do that. Um, other folks use the maintenance enforcement program that I spoke about before. So that's not just for those Section 7 expenses that are part of child support, but can also be used for the table amounts if folks want to do that. Um, I mean, one of the nice things about MEP is that they also have, I mean, they keep a very nice accounting and record keeping of all the payments that are made. So, um, you know, it, it can alleviate a lot of disputes. <laughs> um, um, yeah, so there's a bunch of different ways. I mean, people could, I, I suppose, pay each other cash they could pay in cash if they wanted to i haven't seen that happen a whole lot but <laughs> yeah okay money is money don't pay cash don't pay <laughs> yeah. cash uh i mean I you could like it's not like you can't but like if there's any kind of dispute about how much is being paid don't pay yeah. cash because there's no record yeah I love e-transfer. Yeah. E-transfer is one of the greatest innovations that the Canadian banking cartel has come up with over the past <laughs> 10 years. It's, uh, it's secure, it's safe, there's a record, it's traceable. Yeah. Um, just make sure you get the email right, right. Um, and provide a good pass and have a good password so that you don't just send it to somebody and with a really easy guessable password and then it's gone. There's nothing you can do about it. E-transfer keeps a record. So yeah. MEP is very good, especially if it's um, high conflict or where one party is just kind of like, they do pay, but sometimes they're late and that really makes it a challenge. MEP is great. MEP is not great where there needs to be some flexibility. Yeah. Um, and, and where somebody's in an industry where their income does fluctuate from year to year, year quite a bit and it needs to be a real-time adjustment, MEP is not the place to go because the only way you're going to fix that is with a court order. And while you can do it by consent relatively quickly, if there's not consent, then it's not going to be quick and, and it's going to be a huge pain. So MEP is great, except for when it's not great, then it's terrible. Yeah, and they have a lot of enforcement. I mean, the reason to use MEP is because not only do they administer the payments, but they also have enforcement abilities that, I mean, you if you have an order or a judgment, you can take civil enforcement steps on that. But it costs money and it's difficult. You'd probably have to hire a lawyer and all sorts of things to try and do that. And it's really not often worth the trouble. But the maintenance enforcement program has enforcement actions they can take. So usually they start somewhere around, um, I mean, they'll they'll send reminders, warnings, they'll try and uh, enter um, into a payment arrangement with the payor. Um, but they can start doing things like suspending licenses. They can garnish e wages. They can garnish e bank accounts. They can um, uh, interrupt. They can, garnish, they can garnish government benefits as well. Yeah, GST returns, tax returns, um, all that kind of stuff. So passport. Yeah, right. So they've you know, got baseball bats, and they know how to use them, and they will use them. And they will. Yeah. So. Um, yeah, they're a good tool for those situations where you really do need those enforcement mechanisms. But Evan's right. If if the payor needs some flexibility sometimes, and the recipient's okay with that, um, they can be a bit. They can be a bit. Um, again, a blunt tool for that. 
Yeah. And let's just be clear. You can't block somebody from registering with MEP. No. If the payee wants to register with MEP, they're going to do it and they can yeah. do it. It's their right. In every single child support order, there's a clause that must be in there that says this order will be registered by MEP if one of the parties wants to do it. And payors, I've had payors um, benefit from registering with MEP as well, because if you're in the situation where uh, there's a dispute over whether you've made payments, um, because that does happen too, right? Like as Evan alluded to, don't pay cash because there's no record. Sometimes that happens where, um, you know, the payor is saying, well, I paid though, and the recipient refuses to acknowledge that. So MEP keeps a nice record of that. Kim, I've got another question, but I want to—I want you to have another go. Okay, I—I'm looking to know more about the duration of child support. So um, this is a selfish question because a lot of people come to me and say, "Well, I've, I know what I'm going to pay for child support roughly based on an initial discussion with a lawyer." And then I usually say, well, did they indicate how long these payments are going to last? And then the, the answer is usually like, oh, we haven't talked about that yet. So I think a lot of people are wondering, once you get this set up, how long do you have to pay? I'm sure there's, a, it depends in there, but <laughs> is there um, a common payment period? Yeah, well, you've been hanging out with enough lawyers, Kim, to know that like it depends is our biggest, our most favorite thing. So um, if you're a married couple and um, dealing with support under the Divorce Act, child support is payable so long as and when the children remain uh, children of the marriage. And that's a defined term in the Divorce Act. So um, often that's when they reach the age of major majority, um, but they can remain children of the marriage because of some certain circumstances. So attendance full-time at post-secondary is often one of those um, situations. Um, or if a child is unable to leave the charge of their parents for some reason, um, and that might be by virtue of a physical um, or um, mental disability. So um, in the case of a child that's attending school, what happens is things get muddy again, <laughs> they get complicated. So um, sometimes that child's not living with one of the parents. Maybe they're going off to another province or another city or town to attend post-secondary. So who's the payor, who's the recipient, who's the child residing with, neither of them. So that becomes complicated. Do the parents continue to pay table child support at all? Do they pay table child support to the child? How do they share the costs of post-secondary education? Um, and there aren't necessarily straight ahead answers to those questions because again, the court tells us we have to have a contextual analysis of those things. We need to look at the child's ability to contribute. Are they working a part-time job? Are they able to secure bursaries, loans, scholarships um, to contribute to their education? 
often a first degree, they're not going to start looking at this, but um, often with higher learning after a second degree, they're going to start looking at what the child is pursuing in university and their chances or post-secondary and their chances for success of that. So um, a first arts degree is probably not going to be questioned too much. But if a child then pursues something that has very little chance of leading to um, an employment opportunity or something that's going to be valuable, then a court's less likely to order um, that that child be supported in those circumstances. They're going to look at some of the plans that their parents might have had while they were still together for the post-secondary education of their children. So did they have RESPs in place? Did they talk about sending their kids to post-secondary and supporting them? Or had they always told their kids like, high school after that, you guys are on your own. <laughs> Start saving now, those kinds of things. And lastly, they're going to look at the financial circumstances of both parties. So um, if you have a child that wants to go to Yale and it's going to cost them, I don't know what Yale costs these days, but I'm assuming it's somewhere in the tens, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars, that's just not going to be practical for parents to be supporting if they're earning, if they're both earning $30,000. It might even not be practical if they're both earning eighty dollars or $100,000. So lots, lots of stuff that is, a, it depends in that category. Yeah. And let's just, I wanted to just uh, refer to the, I just pulled up the definition of child of the marriage. Um, of course, what you said is exactly right, Heather. It says a child of marriage is a child who is under the age of majority, who has not withdrawn from the charge of the parents. So that changes from province to province, of course. In Alberta, it's 18. British Columbia, it's 19. Um, and, or, or, sorry, is the age of majority or over and under their charge, but unable by reason of illness, disability, or other cause to withdraw from the parents' care in order to obtain the necessaries, the necessaries of life. Now, the, the reason this is a little bit complex and can be confusing is that's the Divorce Act. In Alberta, we have the Family Law Act and each province has their own version of that act. The Family Law Act is when parties have kids that either they're not married or they're not getting a divorce yet, but they need to deal with this issue of child support. Then it goes under the Family Law Act here in Alberta. And that it's, it has the same but different definition. And the difference is that it tackles this issue of post-secondary education more head on. And so the analysis changes slightly if you're under the Family Law Act or the Divorce Act. And I don't think it's important uh, to get into those details right now, but just, just so you're aware, there's a difference and you can talk to a lawyer about it, they'll be able to, to tell you. As Heather's already indicated, a lot of things go into it. Uh -huh. Let me just kind of give an, an uh, let me just put a thought into your brain about this. Do you wanna be that guy or that gal who's really fighting not to support their child's post-secondary education? Probably not. But do you want to be that guy or gal who is just trying to milk the other person for as much money as they can and kind of abusing the system in order to do that such that it creates a court fight 
about whether or not child support is still payable. This is like, it's such a sticky kind of situation. And so uh, really ideally, hopefully, people can kind of agree on what that's gonna look like. And the earlier you agree on it in advance, the better, because then there's some certainty when that time comes. Yeah, if you have elementary school age kids when you're separating, um, and I mean, I'll bring up this topic with my clients, they'll be like, are you kidding me? You want me to <laughs> figure out what we're going to do for university? Um, yeah. But I mean, really, if you can have that conversation early on, then... Um, I mean, it helps for financial planning for yourselves and for the kids as you move forward. So if you know you've agreed with your ex that, you know, I mean, we, we're not going to pay the child table amount, but yeah, let's help them out with their education. And um, parents often still have our ESPs for their children that they're contributing to once they're separated to um, support those plans. You know, it, it's, it's never too soon to think about those things. And it's never a bad idea to have them comp contemplated in your um, separation agreement or divorce documents. Kim, you're hitting all the high points. What else you got? Yeah. <laughs> so the, the next topic is two words that become pretty, that pop up a lot if you get involved in family law. The words are imputed income. <sighs> And this is, a, I think, a super important did you topic. Did Heather? I did. I'm like, oh. <laughs> imputed income. I learned, I learned about imputed income in a textbook. And I was like, this is very interesting because people often worry about their spouses purposely not working. So their income's low. They don't have to pay. Um, what happens when income is changing? How does that move the dial in child support? Um, and what do the courts have for tools? to mm -hmm. to help help make, get the income right so what are your thoughts you guys and one of the uh, the terms of art there uh kim is intentionally underemployed mm -hmm. so heather on that note mm -hmm. take it away yeah so i mean we talked about adding stuff back into income and um like that's not the same as imputing income right we're just sort of like trying to determine income at that point so if you have someone who's running a business and you think they're over deducting expenses we're not necessarily going to impute income back into them we're going to look at their expenses and add that back in um but sometimes you might have a business person who um, during the marriage, they were, or relationship, they were drawing a decent salary of X number of dollars. And then suddenly, uh, six months after separation, their salary's gone down by 40%, 80%, whatever it is. Um, so their income, if you look at it in their tax return, their line 15000 says X number of dollars. You look at their expenses, maybe you can, you know, add a little bit to that, but you're still not getting something that you think it was before. Um, so then you need, you can look at the financials of the corporation and see if there's money that is available to them that they are not paying to themselves and impute that income to them. Um, but as Evan said, you kind of have to pass that hurdle of intentional. Well, that's different, actually, the underemployed part. So that's one of the situations where you can impute income back into someone. So they're not declaring it as income. Maybe they're not even taking it as income, but there's money available there that should 
be from the court's view, being paid to that person for the support of their children. So the court is basically saying like, I don't care if you can live on $30,000 and you're saving the money in your corporation, that money is there and it's available for your children and it should be going to the support of your children. So we're going to say that you are making your pre-separation income. We're imputing income to you. We're going to say your income is this, even though your tax return says that. Um, I think the other situation that you're talking about is where, um, you know, one of the parties says like, well, they should be working or, you know, they're just staying at home with the kids um, or someone is not taking as many shifts as they could be or they were before. So as Evan said, you would have to show that the person is intentionally un or underemployed for the purposes of defeating child support. So I'm just going to say it as simply as this. That's tough. <laughs> that is pretty hard. If you've got emails from your ex that says like, well, whatever, screw you. I'm going to quit my job then. <laughs> um, Good luck getting any child support from me, buddy. Right. Okay. Maybe you have the two elements, right? But most of the time you're not going to have that kind of evidence. Um, and, you know, I mean, it's going to depend again on like, what's the economy like? What's this like? What are the job opportunities? in their field, that kind of thing. But that's, that's a tough one. That's, that's a tough one. What do you think about that, Evan? I've never dealt with this for child support. I've dealt with it in the context of spousal support or partner support. That's a little different. It's the same, but different. Uh, there's less, like in child support, are, like, if you're really doing that, I, I just don't think it's all that common that people would purposely become underemployed to defeat child support. I just haven't, I, I don't know that I've ever seen that where like, oh, that's really, really what's happening here. People, most of the time, they want to do the right thing and they want to provide for their child. And when a lawyer tells them child support is the right of the child, that rings true with them and they, they want to do it. That's been my experience. Spells of support, nobody, and I mean, nobody wants to pay it. And if somebody, um, and I haven't even, I haven't seen it where somebody is intentionally underemployed who's a payor, but for the payee, who's like, I'm not getting a job. You're paying spousal support, buddy. Why should I have to work? Mm. Um, and that's an un totally understandable and kind of like, it's a vindictive approach that like you get, you get it, right? Like they're, they're ticked off at this person and why should they have to work? They didn't work during the relationship. They wanted to be a stay at home parent. They want to stay home with the child and that's understandable as well. And so they're not going to work. Well, I don't want to get too sidetracked because that spells support is a different issue. We'll talk about that later, mm -hmm. but, um, I've seen it more in that way. And by the way, even in that situation, that is, it's, I agree with you, Heather, it's tough. How do you prove that? Um, the court sometimes doesn't need you necessarily to prove that intention. If circumstantially it's, it's pretty clear that the person could, could be working. Like if you're just not working at all and you're not, uh, don't have a disability, then the court, I don't think it's too much of a stretch for the court to say, okay, you could be making 15,000 a year uh -huh. at McDonald's, uh -huh. making minimum wage. Uh -huh. But beyond that, I mean, I, I agree, Heather, I think it's really yeah. tough.
I've been successful sometimes in imputing income to you in situations where there's like maybe uh, cash cash jobs are happening, things like that. Sure. But you've got to, you know, you need some decent, reliable evidence there as well. So, yeah. yeah. Right. It puts the court in a tough situation. Like put yourself in a judge's seat um, who's impartial, dispassionate third party, and you're asking them to impute income to somebody, you, if you don't have a lot of evidence, what are they supposed to do? Uh -huh. It puts them in a tough decision, even if they think it might be happening. Uh, if there's no evidence or not convincing enough evidence to support it, either direct evidence or circumstantial evidence, I mean, the judge, can't, it'd be hard to find that fact. Uh -huh. I certainly have the folks that are making a decent wage, they're working hard, and they're surprised by the amount of child support that they have to pay. Um, and it, it, it bothers them. And not that they don't want to support their children, but as Evan said, maybe they've got, you know, their servicing debt of the relationship or, um, you know, a mortgage they can't get out of, all sorts of factors that are going on. Um, they want to, you know, take care of themselves for retirement, all of that stuff. And and they say, why am I, you know, why don't I just stop working then? And I won't have to pay so much. But, you know, sometimes I just kind of walk them back from that or walk them through that and say, do you really want to um, cut off your nose to spite your face, basically, right? Are you going to take that cut to your lifestyle then, right? Do you not want to drive a vehicle? Do you want to move out to somewhere, uh, you know, to move move out of the place that you're living in, those kinds of things. So that's something to think about too, if you're on the payor side and you're, you're kind of not happy with what you might be having to pay. This is probably a good time to bring up taxation of support payments. So taxation is different for child support versus spousal support. And I, I know sometimes lawyers look to see, you know, what money's coming from what bucket, and there are potentially ways to um, save some money for the payor. Uh, for example, child support is not taxed in the hands of the recipient. Uh, so it's a favorable way of collecting money. Um, what do you guys typically tell your clients about the taxation of support payments? Uh, that they're not, that, that you're paying them with after tax dollars. The reason that, so I think you're kind of alluding to spousal support versus child support. Spousal support, month, like periodic, spousal support as opposed to lump sum or paying it all at once. Periodic spousal support is paid with before tax dollars by the payor and, and is taxed in the hands of the recipient. Child support is not that way. Um, this policy reason, the, the person paying child support is supporting their child. It's not going for the benefit of another person or, or increasing their income. It's for the child. That's the whole concept about it. And so, uh, yeah, it's not like a tax write-off. You don't get a tax write-off for getting divorced. You get treated like everybody else as far as that goes. Yeah, right. um, I don't get a tax write-off for uh, buying food for my children. Right. Maybe that's something we could look at. I would be down. <laughs> but so far, the government doesn't agree with me that that's a good idea. And so <laughs> child support falls under that category. Respousal support. Um, you're literally shifting income. That's the purpose of spousal support is to more or less 
equalize income. And so if we're equalizing income, then you're gonna pay income tax on that increase in income. And it would be unfair, like the government reluctantly doesn't double dip on that. I'm sure they'd love to, but uh, they don't double dip. And so if one person's paying income tax, the other person will not be paying income tax. And big, big asterisk, I'm not a tax lawyer. I don't practice in that area of the law. Uh, I do not give tax advice. And I know it's the same with Heather. Uh, Kim, you're probably uh, the best suited here to give any kind of tax advice, but I know you're also not an accountant and we really look to accountants to take, or tax lawyers to shoulder the liability that comes along with that type of advice. Yeah, correct. Mm -hmm. so, so I've got, you're probably laughing here. I have so many questions on child support. It's because I don't have kids and I don't know how child support works other than what I put into cash flow analysis for people divorcing. Mm -hmm. So a question that, that came up once in a practice question for an exam I was writing had to do with child support being paid to stepkids. And I, um, the, the question had to do with, so you have your own biological kids that you're paying child support to. Let's say you've been living in the same household with your stepkids for, for you know, the majority of their lives, 10 years, let's say, um, maybe they're getting money from the other, their former, you know, from their parent, the other parent, maybe they're not, but what is the um, responsibility for somebody when stepkids are in the picture? Well, what I can say to preempt Heather's answer is we don't have time for that question. <laughs> it's uh, what you're referring to Kim, is called standing in the place of a parent. And um, yeah, it is, it's complex and there's some issues and it's something we can certainly simplify and talk about, but not today. Mm -hmm. We've got to wrap it up. Um, I did just have one quick scenario I wanted to put to Heather. It's one that I've come across recently, so I, I wrote it down here. Oh, no. And then after, after, I don't think it's going to take too long to answer, Heather. And then after that, we're going to have to wrap up. Um, okay. So I, let's say I'm going through divorce. And let's say I want a 50-50 parenting situation. We haven't gone to court. There's no parenting order. Mm -hmm. The other parent is just not down, not interested in even talking about it. No, I'm getting them every other weekend or something like that, or every weekend as a case may be. Can I just switch to a section nine set off to encourage the change and to encourage, because that's what I think should be happening and is the, is the best interest of the child. So you know what? I'm changing the child support because um, I should be having 50-50 parenting time. So just unilaterally revoking yeah. child well, support there's no, from... There's no court order. Okay. It's just fresh. Uh -huh. um, uh -huh. But the parenting reality is I only have them every weekend. I don't have them half the time. But the only reason is the other person is just unilaterally making a decision about parenting time. Right. I'm capable and willing and want uh -huh. to do it. It's, uh -huh. I firmly believe it's in the best interest of the child. So can I uh, self-help by just paying what the child support according to what I think the situation should be? I mean, I certainly wouldn't recommend that. Um, two wrongs don't make right in the eyes of the courts for the most part. And I usually say to my clients that the amount of child support that you're paying should reflect the reality of what the parenting situation is. So if you're not happy about what the parenting situation is, then you've got to get that matter to court or before an arbitrator or mediator or whatever um, method it is that you want to use to resolve that dispute 
to get that side sorted out and then let the child support follow. Um, but I think we've mentioned it here many times before courts don't like self-help remedies. They don't like it when you make changes on your own because you think that that's what's right. Great. That's the advice I give Heather. So I'm glad, uh, Phew, thank, I'm relieved too. I'm relieved. <laughs> okay, on that note, um, thank you so much, Heather, for being mostly on the hot seat. And Kim, those are some great questions. We're clearly going to have to do another episode where we can talk a little bit more about this because, okay. Kim, you've got more questions and we want to get them answered. But this has been another episode of Access to Justice. Thanks for listening and or watching. If you have any questions you'd like us to address on the podcast, send an email to access to justice podcast at gmail.com. That's access, the number two, justice podcast at gmail.com. And we'll do our best to get you an answer on an upcoming episode. Thanks for watching, everyone. We'll see you next time. See you next time. Any information in this video is general information only and is not, nor is it intended to be, legal advice. Watching this video does not create a lawyer-client relationship. You should always seek the advice of a lawyer or other qualified professional for advice regarding your individual situation. While we take care to ensure that the information contained in this video is accurate and up-to-date, we make no warranties or representations as to the suitability, completeness, or accuracy of the information contained in this video. Any reliance you place on the information is at your own risk. Kahane Law Office, Merrick Law, Heather Malarick Professional Corporation, Evan Clark Professional Corporation, Evan Clark, Heather Malarick, and any guests will not be responsible nor liable in any way for any content, including but not limited to any errors or omissions in the content, or for any loss or damage of any kind incurred as a result of any content communicated in this video, whether by Evan Clark, Heather Malarick, or by a third party. Kim McDonald is a financial advisor with Raymond James Limited. Information provided is not a solicitation, and although obtained from sources considered reliable, is not guaranteed. The view and opinions contained in this media are those of Kim McDonald, not Raymond James Limited. Securities-related products and services are offered through Raymond James Limited, member Canadian Investor Protection Fund. Insurance products and services are offered through Raymond James Financial Planning Limited, which is not a member Canadian Investor Protection Fund. Raymond James advisors are not tax advisors, and we recommend that clients seek independent advice from a professional advisor on tax-related matters. Turn water into wine.